How fortuitous. I'm in Kansas hunting for a big buck, and our chapter this week is called The Buck Stops Here. This morning he did not stop here. He was in the mist like a gorilla standing on a bridge while I was standing there watching him. And we all know what happens when they do that. They take off and run. So anyway, uh, on with chapter 11 and uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10. The buck stops here. Uh, this is going to be uh, probably the best way to put it is an application to chapter 9, which is changing heads and uh, what he means by changing the, the head of the family. Um, so it's one of those that we'll study and, and uh, review all by itself. This chapter called The Buck Stops Here. The Buck Stops Here. Chapter 10. God has planned for someone to take charge. Men, it's you. The Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 and 23 names the man as the head of the house, comparing him to Christ as the head of the church. It has powerful meaning for men. The truth is Christ is the savior of the church and provides solutions to the problems of its members, so is the man to be toward his family. Solutions to family problems are to initiate with the man. At the end of a meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, a couple approached me. She did the talking, and he stood a little behind and to one side of her. Our daughter, she said, has run away from home. We want you to pray for us that God will bring her back. Well, I'll be happy to agree with you in prayer about that, I said. I looked at her husband. Do you have anything to say, I asked. No, he replied. I think she has said it all, so we prayed together. They returned a few hours later for the evening meeting ahead of everyone else. When I arrived early myself, I found them waiting. Their daughter was with them. Our daughter has just come home, the woman said, but we can't seem to talk to her. She won't say much to us, but maybe she'll talk to you. Would you talk to her? I invited the girl to step into a small nearby classroom with me. As the father of two girls, I had some parental experience as well, paternal experience as well. The young girl was 13 years old, and she was nervous. I asked her a few simple questions. Her answers at first were monosyllabic. How do you like your mother? I finally asked in the course of her conversation. The girl sparked somewhat when I asked that. Using the teenage version of eloquent, she told me about her mother. And how about your dad? She fell sullen and silent. I waited a moment, expecting, expecting at least some response. There was none. Is there something wrong with dad? I asked. She sat and looked out the window and gave no response. Not a word. So we talked about other matters. At last, when she began telling me about a problem she had, I asked her why she didn't tell her father. He won't listen, she started abruptly, stated abruptly. What do you mean, I asked her. He never listens, she responded. When I try to tell him something or explain something to him, he won't listen. He never accepts my side of the argument, and he blames me for everything. 
She had her momentum now. She went on, but the message was clear. I knew what her problem was. In a few minutes, I brought her back to her parents. They looked to me expectantly. I've had a very nice talk with your daughter, I told them. I think things can work out well. The father said nothing. The mother waited a moment, then looking non-pulsed, plussed, she asked, Isn't there anything we need to know? Yes, I answered. Do you want your daughter to stay at home, and do you want to have a normal relationship with her? Why, of course, the mother replied. I looked straight at her and said, Ma'am, I'm talking to your husband now. That was startling for all of them. Okay, I told him. I'll pray with you again and agree with you in prayer for your daughter. I'll pray that she will have a complete change of mind, heart, and attitude, and you will have a perfectly normal household. I looked at the three of them. Are we agreed on that? And they all nodded. I'll do it under one condition, though, I said to him. I'll agree with you in prayer for these things only if you agree with this one condition. Will you do it? He shifted uncomfortably. I'm not sure I want to until I hear it, he said. It's going to be your responsibility, I told him. You're the one who's going to be responsible for the change in your daughter. Can you accept that responsibility? Sure, he muttered. All right, here's the condition, I told him. For the next 30 days, your daughter can say anything to you she wants to say, any time she wants to say it, and any way she wants to say it, and you can only listen to her. You can't answer her or anything until those 30 days are up. Then you can talk to her. The father swallowed hard. He was stunned. Ridiculous. There was no way he could agree to something like that, not in his own home. Fine, I shrugged. Then I can't agree with you in prayer for a change of heart in your daughter and normal relationships in your household. What you're asking is impossible, he protested. It is not impossible, I countered. It is simply a question of whether or not you desire a change in your home and whether you can be responsible for it. Finally caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place, he agreed weakly. I don't know if I can do it, he said, but I'll try. The four of us prayed together. I agreed with them for a complete change in their daughter, her heart, mind, attitude, and affections. Three months later, I found myself back in the city of Phoenix. I walked into that same church on a Sunday evening. The first ones to meet me were the father, mother, and daughter. I had prayed with on the last trip. They were a totally different family, outgoing, happy, standing close to each other, unafraid to touch one another. What happened to you? I cried out when I saw them. Evidently, God answered prayer. God really did answer prayer, the father said. I listened and then listened some more. At first, it was all I could do to restrain myself from telling her I had I, I'd had it with her, grounding her for a month for what she was saying, and just really giving it to her. But I did remember that I wanted to change, so with all that was in me and all that God could give me, I listened to her. Finally, as I listened, I began to realize that some of the things she was saying were right. I was wrong. As it turned out, the condition had not been technically met. The experiment didn't last the whole 30 days. It only lasted about three weeks, the father explained. 
That's when my daughter decided she had said everything she had wanted to say. She walked in and sat down on the edge of the bed one evening and said to me, I'm all finished for now. What do you want me to say? What do you want to say to me? In that moment, the father told me there was the beginning of a beautiful restoration in our relationship. My wife and I just came out, just reached out our arms, and she came to us. We hugged her and just loved her. When I began to talk to her, I told her how I, I had been wrong, recalling times when I had been brusque or abrupt, times when I had not listened to her side of the story, times when I had taken someone else's side, times when I had put undue burdens on her, and times when she had done the same to us. The man was glowing when he told me the story and the end result. When I asked my daughter to forgive me, he said, that was the moment she began to change and our whole family has changed today. My problem was the fact that I was so busy I didn't take time to listen to my daughter. The daughter, it turned out, had not completely failed her family. The mother had become the leader only out of necessity. She was not the source of the breakdown in the family. It was a father's responsibility. He was responsible for the family's problem. He didn't listen. By listening, he became responsible for success in, the relation, in their relationships. The solution to family problems in God's order for the family is to begin with the father. Millions of men duplicate the effort, or lack of it, of that father in Phoenix. They are so occupied with their busyness that they leave their ministry of listening to the children in their wives' hands. It's a man abdicating part of his manhood. It is a rare family these days when the man of the house exercises leadership in solving family problems. Passing the proverbial buck has become a fine art in this world. President Harry Truman made himself a folk hero by planting a peculiar sign on his Oval Office desk. It declared, the buck stops here. All the buck passing stopped at his desk. Truman understood that tough truth as one of Truman understood that tough truth as one of the marks of a leader. Buck passing is a colloquial term for self-justification. Justification, that theological tongue twister, simply means... <coughs> justification, that theological tongue twister, simply means being made right. On the other hand, self-justification means taking yourself right in your own eyes. It was in Eden that the pattern for self-justification was set, and it is still lived out today. Adam sinned in Eden, and as a result, hid himself from God. There came a moment when God called to Adam, and he had to come out of hiding. God's insistent inquiry as to his whereabouts caused Adam to explain... <clears throat> God's insistent inquiry as to his whereabouts caused Adam to explain his absence. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Genesis 3 and 10. Guilt, fear, and hiding. The sequential order, ordered results of sin established millennium ago in Eden are still the same today. No man can live with guilt. It's a killer. Guilt weighs heavily and leads to fear. So men still hide. They try to escape, escape reality, escape God, escape responsibility. They do it by using philosophy, 
drugs, alcohol, pleasure, and many other ways. But getting rid of guilt by any of these methods is just being made right in your own eyes. Self-justification is buck-passing. Read how Adam did it, and you will see the how-to pattern for trying to get rid of guilt that he set for all men, from the days in the garden until now. Did you take of the tree? God asked Adam. Uh, the woman made me do it. <clears throat> Place it on someone else. Easy. Take your guilt, give it to another by putting the blame on them, and you are free. Just pass the buck. Note how well Eve learned from Adam. When she was asked if she had taken the fruit of the tree, her reply was according to pattern. The devil made me do it, she pouted. Flip Wilson, an old comedian, made millions of dollars and millions of people laugh with that line, but it wasn't funny in reality. Eve made herself right in her own eyes by placing the blame on the devil. However, all she had demonstrated was that all sin does originate with Satan, but hers was a wrong use of the truth. Truth is a foundation for life, but blackmail is one use of the truth. It's wrong. So was Eve. So were those today who practice the same pattern of self-justification. Consider the ingrained process in the man sitting at his breakfast table at home. His wife is fixing something at the sink, and his son sits with him at the table. The son reaches for the toast, spills the milk, and looks quickly at his father. The father scowls, scolds, and slaps. How many times do I have to tell you to watch what you're doing? The father asks. No answer needed. As the son cries, the father and mother clean the table. Now it's a week later. Same family, same breakfast table. Father reaches for the toast. His elbow spills the glass of milk. The son looks quickly and intently at the father to see what will happen this time. Father scowls at mother, then speaks to her. How many times do I have to tell you, he demands, not to put the milk so close to my elbow? Hmm. I think I've done that. No. <clears throat> Editorial comment. Dad just justified himself by placing the blame on someone else. In doing so, he taught his son by example to do likewise. That behavioral trench is dug deep in the soil of the human soul. Its rut runs to ruin. Men today practice a science, practice as a science what Adam and Eve practiced as a desperate experiment. Modern man blames a woman as if that is the way it should be. That's wrong. Every man must answer for his own actions, and he must answer to God alone. That is why Calvary, was, where Christ died, is so important. It is the only place in the world where sin can be placed and forgiveness from God received. It is the only place where guilt can be released. Tragic consequences are left on society by men who still try to cover their mistakes, errors, and sins. Think of those who would rather let their marriage die than admit the sin and give it new life. Men who would, men who would rather let their businesses collapse than confront failure and give it new life. Men who would rather let their children flee in frustra frustration than come to grips with their own shortcomings and renew those ragged relationships. When a man fails to confess his own sins, when he steps into the background and allows problems to swallow up the members of his family, he is actually a coward. 
There are times when silence is golden. Other times, it's just plain yellow. God looks at the man for, for strong family leadership. I have a close personal friend whom we'll call Jerry. That's not fair, no. Jerry's oldest daughter, Cheryl, as a teenager, rebelled against the lifestyle of her parents and became very willful, independent, and rebellious. She did her own thing, with or without the blessings of her parents. In her many escapades, there always seemed to be a boy involved. Her parents worried about her. A pattern of behavior evolved, escaped, punishment, reconciliation. I'm sorry, a pattern of behavior evolved, escapade, punishment, reconciliation. Again and again, we saw the scene played out in living color. One day, Cheryl disappeared. For almost two full days, her anxious parents searched for her, called relatives, inquired discreetly among neighbors, and questioned her friends. Though they did, they did not want to involve the police, finally they had no choice. They had been gone too long, and it would be dangerous not to call the authorities. I mean, sorry, she had been gone too long, and it would be dangerous not to call the authorities. But news travels fast on the teenage grapevine. The moment the decision was made to call the police, Cheryl's cooperating friends alerted her. Within an hour, she was back home. She had been at a friend's house not too far away. But news had got out, and police had been called, and now everyone knew about the problem. Jerry vowed to punish his daughter. He was determined to humiliate her, and she, as she had the family. I knew his attitude because I had been with him through the whole ordeal. I knew what he was suffering as a man and as a father. He was embarrassed, and he was determined to make her feel what he felt. What he did not realize was that the discipline he was planning for his daughter was not only for co correction, but also for revenge. That would harden her, not change her. I knew how to minister to him. He was the one who needed it now. <clears throat> so I invited him to go with me to a coffee shop. It was going to be just him and me, eyeball to eyeball, man to man. You know what's happening to you? I ask over our coffee after our preliminary remarks. You're resentful because your daughter, because you think your daughter has taken away your prestige in the community, undermined your position in the church, and tarnished your, your reputation as a man and father. You're thinking that because of her, you're suffering a loss of status. He was staring at me, but I went ahead for his own good. He was my friend. In the first place, the truth is that almost everyone goes through these same things with their children. Maybe not precisely like you, but similarly in lots of ways, so the people who, that you think are looking at you critically aren't. What they really, what they really looking at is your reaction. They're looking at you to see how you handled this whole thing. Right now, Cheryl's getting sympathy because of your actions instead of suffering because of hers. He didn't say a word. He just looked at me. You're the one suffering, I told him, and you're taking it out on her. What you need to do is forgive her again, love her, and try to communicate with her. Ask God what to do and say, how can you communicate with her when you're, condo when you're condoning her? <clears throat> I'm sorry, let me read that again. What you need to do is forgive her again. 
love her, and try to communicate with her. Ask God what to do and say. How can you communicate with her when you're condemning her? Christ said he came to condemn, but to came not to condemn, but to save, John 3 and verse 17. But you're the one who needs to ask God for the solution. Besides, as the head of your house, you're the one who is responsible for initiating the effort to find the solution. When you change, she'll start changing. There was more, but that is the substance of what I said. I didn't see him for several days. When we did meet again, we headed for the coffee shop. He sat there for a while, coffee cup in hand, and just waited. After you said what you did, he began, I thought a lot about it and decided you were wrong. But then, the more I examined my motives, actions, and what I had said, the more I began to think maybe you were partially right. I waited, listening. Late that night, after we talked, he continued, I went out into our backyard where I do my private praying. It came to me while I was there that no matter what caused Cheryl's rebellion, it was up to me to provide a solution, or at least begin to try to find one. He said that as he walked up and down in that backyard praying alone with God, he found himself asking God for forgiveness for himself, for a renewal of his heart and mind, and for clear passageway through which solutions could come. God changed his heart that night. The transformation in his family began in that precious private hour. Ensuing days would reveal openly what had happened in secret between a man and his Lord. The rift between the family and the daughter was bridged. The wounds were healed. Tension softened once again into affection. The solution came. Father finally knew best. Men have to learn to see themselves in the sight of God before they can see their families. But no one can see a thing with the lights out. In a dark room, trying to walk around, you can bump into everything there and never know what you hit. Turn on the light, though. It becomes clear, and you can walk safely through it all. The man who is spiritually dark can see the nose on the front of his spiritual face. I'm sorry, the man who is spiritually dark can't see the nose on the front of his spiritual face. Jesus is the light of the world, John chapter 8 and verse 12. In the light of his word, we see ourselves. In Holy Spirit illuminations, the Holy Spirit illumines, one more time, the Holy Spirit illumines the truth, and the truth makes us free, verse 32. John's word is truth, God's word is truth, and his spirit is the spirit of truth. God is not indifferent to your needs. It was for this purpose that Jesus Christ said he came into this world. It is the men who say they have no needs for whom God can do nothing. Let me read that again. It is the men who say they have no needs for whom God can do nothing. God loves you. God wants your good. God wants your life to be lived to the maximum. Jesus, Just as Jesus Christ is the head of the church and begins and brings his salvation and solutions, he can do the same through you to your family. You are the channel. Your family looks to you first. To try to escape from that responsibility is to hide from reality. To refuse to acknowledge the need is to escape reality. God is looking to you as a man 
to provide leadership. God has given his word, and by his own spirit, he has given the perfect tool, divine wisdom. With the word and wisdom, he expects you to find the solutions, such as the challenge of manhood, to know God, to know yourself, to know your family, and to let the buck stop with you. Chapter 10. Thank you.